listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube, and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Daria Brown, and I'm here with Dr. John Carpente. He is a returning guest. He's a DIR expert and training leader, a professor of music therapy at Malloy University, and a founder and executive director of the Rebecca Center for Music Therapy. He's also the owner of Developmental Music Health Services, LLC, and founding music therapist and creator of the DIR Floor Time-based music therapy program at the Rebecca School in New York City, where he used to participate in weekly supervision and case conferences with DIR's founder, Dr. Stanley Greenspan. So welcome back, John. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. It's been a while, right? It has. We did a podcast some years ago about music and floor time, and I will put a link to that at the blog post at affectautism.com for those listening on audio or even watching on YouTube. You can look in the notes for um, the link to the blog post, and I'll link back to that podcast. So we won't get into repeating all of that again, but we will review some of the the stuff that we talked about, because what we're going to focus on today is not just how um, floor time works with music therapy, but how parents can do music therapy themselves. And John and I recently did a course for the International Council on Development and Learning about this topic, and we'll be offering it again. And um, we're going to discuss some things that we talked about in the course, but we really want to make it clear that this is something parents can do at home and John's going to describe the whole process and uh, we're going to talk about some of the services that John offers for coaching if you are interested in doing this with your child. So um, yeah, I guess uh, let's just get into, um, oh, oh, and also I will say we will be presenting at the October International Council on Development and Learning Conference, ICDL's Floor Time Conference in October, which is a virtual conference. So uh, look for our presentation there. So yeah, I mean, why don't you just remind us, uh, Dr. Carpente, about music therapy and how a floor timer does music therapy? Sure. Um, well, basically, it's the task of the music therapist to provide music experiences through live interactive music making that in a floor time context, I guess, would facilitate self-regulation, engagement, two-way purposeful communication. So it's not the therapist's job to teach the participants songs or an instrument. It's about how can we work within the musical dimensions to facilitate back and forth uh, two-way purposeful communication. And this could be done through instrument play where the participants playing instruments and the therapist also is playing an instrument could be a harmonic instrument, so piano or the guitar or singing, and the participants may be playing a drum. So how can I create music that's going to help make that drumming relational and supportive so the participant's excited to keep playing? 
and motivated to engage for a sustained period of time. Uh, most of the music in that context is improvised, where the, the therapist is following the child's lead, just like slower time, right? Uh, and meeting their affect with the music, but also the extra musical things that we provide with the music. I uh, say our body affect, our facial expressions, it really all depends on the participant and his or her needs, as well as their uh, differences. Yeah, so I mean, I think most of the listeners on this podcast are familiar with DIR floor time, but of course, there's always new listeners in it, and it can get complex, as simple as the model is. And let's review uh, D for developmental, I for individual differences, R for relationship-based. So we, we talked about the relationship, John said, you know, it, within this relationship. Um, but let's get into that I guess let's let's go backwards. Let's go. So we said R. Let's do the I, and then talk about the D because how this looks will vary so much from kid to kid based on what their individual differences are and based on where they are developmentally. Are they interactive, or are they sort of seeming like they're in their own world? Although they they might be engaged, but to us it might seem like they're ignoring us or something is a big difference from somebody who's very interactive and verbal versus non-speaking. So um, can you talk about when you, you get a new client and uh, you want to do floor time through this musical and through the relationship, what are you looking at to determine how you approach the session? Yeah, that's a great question. So initially we want to try to understand how the child perceives and understands and interprets the music that's being presented to him or her, and then how they make music with us. And so since the idea is that the, the, the goal is to, you know, engage in robust back and forth um, musicking, that's not always the case, right? Um, so we want to understand, well, what's getting in his or her way? What are the biological challenges that may be getting in his or her way? Or what are the musical differences? Musical differences, in other words, um, what do the musical conditions need to be like in order for the child to stay regulated and engaged? Maybe he or she only responds to fast and loud music. Uh, maybe he or she uh, responds best when the music is really detached because maybe there's an auditory processing challenge. Um, it really all depends. And so we want to understand why things are happening, even the positive things, you know? Um, okay, why is he or she really engaged in this musical context? but they seem to have a, a, a challenge maybe in this one. Um, and so once we understand that, that then informs the music that we're gonna make with the participant. So the idea is to understand the eye so we can try to help support their ability to be more available for interaction, to help move them up the developmental ladder. It would be self-regulation, engagement, two-way personal communication, etc. Right. And let's just give an example to make it a little bit more concrete for parents. So if there's a child who is very, uh, has very severe auditory sensitivity, so they wear headphones, they, they cover their ears when noises bother them, they tend to hear everything that's happening, you know, rooms away, uh, they might be a lot more sensitive to say if you start drumming, it might be too alarming and overwhelm them, and that will just make them you know, go into fight or flight. So they're not regulated, which is the first developmental capacity. So um, 
what might be something that you would do with a child who that is very pronounced? Yeah, so first we want to understand what, what, a, what is it about the auditory uh, information that may be overloading, for lack of a better term? Because a lot of times, not a lot of times, but sometimes kids, um, they might get overloaded with, um, uh, because of sound, but it's sometimes because they're not controlling the sound or they don't, they're having a hard time locating the sound of where it's coming from. So that could be a thing too, where we might, it might be uh, connecting the auditory to the visual, you know, kind of locate where the sound is coming from, then maybe it doesn't bother me as much because it could be a startling effect. And so really it's like a domino effect. You know, if the auditory is, if the visual is impacting the auditory, that's going to impact fight or flight, it's going to impact proprioception, all that other stuff, right? Um, and then we have some kids who are really super, super um, sensitive to sound. They, you know, they have perfect pitch. And so they can, and their auditory filters are non-existent. So they can hear something that I can't even hear in another room and that diverts their attention. So with that, you know, the way we might work in music might be to adjust dynamics and volume. Um, it might also be to use music as an adjunct for say interpersonal interaction, um, where say music isn't the main focal point, but it could be an instrument uh, in which we put something in the instrument and make it, you know, more appealing or more attractive. Uh, or as we see, we sometimes we see kids who are underreactive auditorily. It doesn't mean that they're part of hearing. It could mean that there's just a disconnect between what they're hearing and how the brain is making sense of this. And so, so it could be a delayed auditory, pro auditory processing delay. This maybe might require, you know, how I provide the music might be, might be uh, to do it in, in long phrases and, and big pauses to wait more to see what's happening, you know, or to vamp more in the music. So we, wanna, we don't want to give the child the sense that the music is moving without them. So as a musician, um, I can hold and vamp and stay in a section and wait and try to call out for a response. Or maybe there's silence that's needed, a pause. And then we wait and maybe use our body affect in that silence to create this anticipatory type of signal where they know that, oh, I'm gonna hit the symbol here or I'm going to say, say a sound or whatever it is. So it's hard to really nail it down because there's so many combinations of things that can happen. Um, that's why the assessment could take, you know, up to three, four times. Actually, I really look at every assessment, every session as an assessment. Um, uh, so that's kind of, we're really sensitive to try to understand how they're perceiving and understanding and how we can support it. Um, so they're more available and, and regulated for the interaction. Yeah. You know, this is just a small part of it. All of that tremendous amount of information you just gave is just really focusing on auditory and then we didn't even talk about visual and you know body movement and proprioception, all that, we can get into all of that. But um, a couple of things jumped out for me. So the child who you said uh, is anxious because sounds seem to be coming from out of nowhere and they don't know where it's coming from. So the first thing I thought of is when Dr. Greenspan always said like, let the child be in control. Um, and so I imagine you giving the child something where they can go, and it makes a cool sound or like a triangle ding, or you know whatever and even though it might be a loud sound that usually would startle them if they're the one that gets to do it they think it's kind of cool so 
that's like that's I guess an example for parents of of that. And then when you said the children who um, are a little bit undersensitive and auditory, that that's definitely my son, and maybe some delays. This made me think of kids who I hear this from parents all the time listen to the same song over and over and over and over. So I have this setup in my car where we drive to school. I have my old cell phone on a holder that my son can see from the back seat. And he's got this little clicker so he can click through all the songs in Spotify. He listens to all his Mario Kart songs. But when I put a new song on and um, just a backstory about this. So sometimes he'll say something and it reminds me of a song and I've always loved music my whole life. So every, I'm like a dictionary of song lyrics. So he said uh, something about what he wants. And I said, tell me what you want. And he said, I really, really want blah, blah, blah. So of course the Spice Girls songs pops in my head. Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. So I put that on his playlist and I've now heard that song 8 million and 37,000 and whatever times because he plays the first verse and he listens and then he goes back and starts it and he plays it and he goes back and starts it and he plays it and it's like he's trying to figure out it's going too fast so he's trying to absorb the lyrics and then and it's not just with this song with other songs too but this is the one it's been lately and then I'll see him starting to sing like sing the words and then he'll take it a step further and he'll start making up lyrics about Mario Kart. <laughs> so I think maybe that's an example of where you said you'll do some kind of music and you make it longer and then pause, give them a chance to absorb it. Um, and, and even though what I just said isn't necessarily what you do in your session, I just wanted to give parents an example of what they see in their children, like repeating things to hear them over and over again so that they can learn it and memorize it because it's going too fast. Like think of how fast most music is and songs on the radio, um, like pop songs or whatever. So it, it's too fast for them to figure out and, and they have to learn it slowly. And I mean, we're all like that. Like if you, I know you play guitar, like I've tried to play guitar. I've tried to learn to play guitar numerous times and like I have to go so slow, like try and figure out how to put my fingers on the cord and like it takes a long time, right? So with our kids in the auditory processing, same thing. Yeah, that's a great point. It's true. Everything we do is we want to stay, we want to, you know, accompany the nervous system as opposed to working against it, you know? And so that's, that's yeah, and what's great about live music is that we can adjust the tempo and the dynamic, you know, the, how fast it goes and how loud it is. Uh, accordingly to how we feel that the, the child may be receiving the information. So, but that, that, that is a good example, you know, and then the more they do it, maybe they're making these connections, you know, because um, I, I think sometimes with uh, kids that have a hard time connecting the auditory to the visual or, or vice versa, I also think there's a developmental skill that might be lagging in terms of cause and effect relationships, you know, because when you don't have that enough to match and to, uh, to match what's happening in different media, you might not realize that you are impacting certain things and how it's impacting you. So if that's the case, can you imagine being like always like anxious because you're not sure? I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, I, think, I think that's my son because he is always very anxious about things and asking a million questions and so concerned about how things work and when things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, that's how he's managing the world. It's, it takes a lot of energy 
emotionally, and then he can do it. So we can refocus that energy, you know, into interaction and, and help him and others develop the capacities to, you know, be able to self-soothe or develop that, that developmental skill, right? In which it's just happening for them. They understand it. They can make sense of it. Oh, this is what, ha this is what happens. Not because it's memorized, but because they have these developmental foundations that now can cross into other contexts, you know, and then help them, you know, just be in those social situations, you know? Yeah, and that's such an important point, what you just said, because so many of the kids, our kids on the spectrum, live through their memory. And uh, Dr. Gil Tippy brought this up in a very early podcast I did, where he thinks that the real shift in floor time, he, he said Dr. Greenspan talked about it at the fourth capacity, but he thinks of it more as fourth to fifth, where you move from the concrete world to the abstract world. And, and the way he described it was, you're no longer operating by memorizing everything. You can now abstract and think and figure things, how things are going to happen. And so many of our kids, um, you know, parents will, will describe, even in the parent support group, things that their kids can do. And um, they're so impressed by them. And, and they, it is impressive, but a lot of it is memory-based. And our kids have amazing memories. But you just described the most important shift in floor time, where, like you said, you want them to be able to have a developmental foundation where they can learn how something works and apply it in different contexts. And that's the whole you know, difference between the behavioral therapies and developmental approaches is behavioral therapies, a lot of times it's just memorizing responses. And, and we want our children to be able to think and understand and have that, like you said, the developmental foundation for it. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, the behavioral foundations don't, do not cross into contexts. You have to teach that skill in every single context. It's impossible. It's impossible. It can't be done. As opposed to developmental foundations, you know, like the joint attention, self-regulation. Once those, and the others, of course, once those are created, those are skills of how to be in relationships that cross into context. You're available to take in new experiences and then assimilate those things, you know, at the park on the ball field, in school, in-house. Not like this, of course, takes a lot of, right? It takes a lot of work, but that, that's, that, those are the core differences, I think. It's not top-heavy, you know? Where you're top-heavy, you know, it's bottom-heavy, but it's all foundational in the house. It's got something to stand on. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, you just said it with Gil uh, states. Absolutely, yeah, 100%. So that, that kind of brings us right into the D, the developmental um, of the DIR model. And like, uh, I think I'll put links in the blog post to the developmental capacities. People that are listening are in various places in their floor time journey, understanding uh, the, the core early six developmental capacities that Dr. Greenspan laid out. So the first one being regulation, um, having self-regulation and, and interest in the world going to the second one, engaging and relating with another person to purposeful emotional communication at the third capacity, going into shared social problem solving and complex communication. And that fourth capacity involves a, a zillion other things, uh, a big shift. And then uh, the fifth capacity, you know, emotional thinking and 
um, into logical thinking in the sixth capacity, among other things. So um, I, I guess what I want to point out here is you said at the beginning, the whole goal of floor time music therapy is to have that interaction with the kids. And so maybe this is where we can talk about the difference because we talked about this at length in the last podcast we did a few years ago about you know this is not music lessons this is not having to be musical or if a parent is you know tone deaf or oh i i can't sing or i can't play instruments this is not about that what we're trying to do is instead of a child who's sitting in the corner like hitting a drum shaking a drum we want to make it interactive and so when they're engaged with us and they're, you know, they're calm enough, they're regulated, um, they're playing this drum and then we're getting them engaged with us. Like I play a drum, you're playing a drum, I play and they're noticing you. And then we're getting this back and forth interaction into the third capacity. And if we're, you know, if we're cooking along like Dr. Greenspan apparently used to say, I never got to meet him. Um, the fourth capacity where you're like figuring out like, hmm, what comes next? you know, where maybe you're, I, I saw a wonderful video that John shared in the courses that he did at ICDL, where, um, you know, he's sort of playing some piano and this little girl's drumming, and then he makes it a little faster, and then she's picking it up and drumming, and that's social problem solving, because she's thinking like, oh, we're making it faster now. Oh, there's a space. I'm going to like hit it. I know when to hit it. Like, so getting to that, you know, moving up the developmental ladder, as you said. So, um, I don't know what the best way to go through this is, but like, how do you think about the D when you, when you see a client come in, like, how do you sort of assess where they are on this scale? And, and this is another side topic of this is the fact that you would consult with the occupational therapists at the Rebecca school when you used to work there years ago. Um, and you would hear, you know, you'd have their profiles from other people on their team. So when you're at Malloy and you're at the music center there doing therapy, I don't know how much information you have. So I'll let you sort of like, you know, how do you figure out where they are developmentally? And, and, and sorry, one last thing. And of course, where they are developmentally in that moment on that day, which could vary from day to day. That's right. It could be maybe they didn't sleep that night or they, the medication changed or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I was at Rebecca school, it was great. Because, uh, you know, the idea is that all the disciplines worked in the same way. So we're realizing floor time goals to each respective discipline. And I used to really be connected to the OTs because they were, I'm sure they still are, experts in understanding the nervous system. So they, they spent a lot of time in music therapy with me because they liked what I was doing as well too. So we, we were able to teach each other, so to speak. Uh, but I wanted to know what was going on in the nervous system biologically when kids were engaged or when they weren't. And I learned a lot from being there. I mean, a lot. So now, uh, you know, we don't have this, we don't have the luxury of having an interdisciplinary team at the clinic. Um, so we ask parents if they can bring in information from the other disciplines. We're on Long Island, Rebecca School's in Manhattan. On Long Island, is not, uh, not, as far as I know, there's not a lot of uh, OTs that, that are uh, specifically focusing on uh, profiling in terms of the sensory system. It's mostly uh, about, you know, fine motor skills, ADL, things like that. And then I'm finding that the sensory profile, not all, I'm just saying some, is just kind of um, not, not a big emphasis. Where at the Rebecca School, it was a huge emphasis. And as part of the DIR model, I think it's 
it's a, it's a, it's a core piece. It helps map out what we're going to do, you know, how we do it. So that's really um, important if I can have that information. And a lot of, and, and sometimes those sensory challenges do manifest in music themselves, you know. Um, say, for example, when we talked about the auditory, but even, you know, the visual uh, processing, see if, if a child's bumping into things or how close they are to certain instruments um, in terms of playing them. Or I've seen uh, sometimes where kids are playing the instrument as if they're playing through it. So they're not sure how close their hand is to the drum. So there's a depth perception challenge there. That's going to affect everything. Or, uh, or what about a child like mine who would want to come in and knock everything down to watch it fall and throw stuff in the air and watch it fly? <laughs> That's right. I and mean, if I just met your child, I would try to figure out like, what's that about? A lot of other places might start putting a, you know, a punitive type of thing with that. But we don't do that. Um, we want to understand why a behavior is happening. It could just be maybe I'm setting the child off too, that my, I'm too loud, the lights are too bright, there's too much stuff in the room. Um, it, or it could be that it's a learned behavior. When I do this, this person watches me. So we have to figure that out. But either way, we, we, that would determine how we work with that behavior. Say, if it is a visual thing and, and that gets in the way, maybe we wouldn't have things that you can, because safety is the first thing. You know, some kids throw things. Um, we can't have that because we don't want them to hurt themselves or the therapists or other kids. So, Or maybe you have like the triangle on a string dangling and they get to hit it and watch it go back and forth because then that satisfies that movement and peace or something like that. That's right. And it all depends if, if that's what it is, if it's a visual thing, then we would use that because they know we know that that's a motivator. So maybe put it at the end of a musical phrase and say, oh, boom, you put it, and you put it there and they hit it. Now we know we have that. We do it again. We repeat the phrase. We'll use the same melody. They hit it. Now you can't keep doing that because it's just memorized. So now maybe we slow down the melody or we don't put it out. What are they going to do? So now they have to rely on their own resources of like, okay, what am I gonna to do to get this thing from this guy? You know? Or he just might he just may withdraw from the interaction. So we want to know that too. Like what's the tolerance level of, of what's going on? We want to get the child at that threshold, you know, the developmental threshold. Can't do that by just copying everything. So and just repeating, 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 because then we'll, what are we doing? We're doing the same thing that they do. And so that that when we when we start changing things, then it becomes adult led, right? It has to be adult-led at some point. Where now I'm going to play it slower. Maybe I go da 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 da. They have to wait. They have to wait. Then I put it out and boom, and it's a big celebration. Or I do it and then I run away, and then they have to come after me. The things that I think people have to realize too is that not only are we getting engagement to a personal communication, which is the end game, but we're also getting we're also working on motor planning, visual processing, all at the same time within the context of the interaction. Right? All of this is happening. It's not like today we're going to work on motor planning. We don't do that in floor time. Motor planning is worked on within the context of an interaction. It's not today we're going to work on motor planning or we're going to work on the swing today. We're going to use that swing to get interaction. We're providing the swing for vestibular input because that's what the child needs. And he or she is regulated now, available for interaction. Now we can do some type of musical thing. Maybe put a, a symbol at the end of that uh, of the end of the line as, as, as it comes through. Because now they're trying to hit it, but that's a great exercise, right? To get depth perception and focusing of the eyes. 
because um, that's that's something that a lot of folks don't pay attention to is the visual processing. It's really, it's really important. I find a lot of kids have challenges in that area. So we work, might work on it in this way and work on those developmental levels because we're trying to get them into more sophisticated play. But all the subtext of this is that motor planning, auditory processing, visual uh, processing, receptive and expressive language skills, maybe not through words, but through other means of communication are all happening in the temporal experience, you know? So it's happening in time. Another, that's another valuable thing to think about because a lot of times uh, kids that we work with have a hard time integrating all of this in a temporal way. Music is just calls out for it. It's in the tempo of the scheme. We can slow it down, we can speed it up, but we wanna cause problems, right? Playful obstruction in the music. And so the music therapist does this and, and, we, we, and what we do, if a parent wants to be involved, is to teach them how to do this. But just like the child has individual differences in being interactive in music or other media, the parents do as well. We all do, we all do. And I think music can be really intimidating for folks I think everybody thinks you need to be trained in music. A lot of times, we're, and I, I'm not making fun, I totally empathize with parents. Oh, I can't sing, I'm told. But a lot of it's performance anxiety. You know, you don't want to, I mean, it's got to be hard to sing in front of someone that you know can, that you know can do it and that you're going to feel judged. So the idea is if I'm the therapist or the coach or the helper, right, it seems maybe less intimidating. We want to establish a rapport with mom, dad, or whoever's working with the child to try to get through these emotional differences um, because that's going to come out in the interaction. It makes the play fragmented or intermittent, you know? So what we, what we propose and try to help in the music context is that it's not about making a record. It's not about the performance part. It's about providing a music experience, maybe through nonverbal singing or through a song you know. could be a good starting point. But how do you do it in a way that's going to help the child move up these developmental levels or capacities? And we can do this in voice. We can do it with a drum. So there's no musical skill required. We're not, we're not asking you to play guitar or piano. That's our job. Um, but how can we work with a drum, a tambourine, an egg shaker, you know, to, to try to get this back and forth? It could be through hitting the drum in a rhythm. It could be through singing a song while playing a drum and then offering it to the child. It really all depends. But usually the first uh, building block is really developing trust of mom and dad that you can do this, uh, you know, with, with me or with, ever, with whoever the music therapist is. We're not, you know, we're not judging you, but we still have to develop that report. It's even in right in floor time too, it can be intimidating. Because as adults, we, we forget how to play. And now I'm trying to play with the, the parents trying to play with their kid in conventional play. And there's a clinician there that's watching this. That's hard. That is really hard. I know for me as the music therapist and the parents watching me, I'm nervous too. Because I'm being judged, you know, and I'm like, oh, I hope the child responds, you know. Because a lot of times parents, they're not sure what to expect in music therapy. Are you going to teach the kids songs? Like, like you said earlier, Daria, are you going to teach them an instrument? It's not about teaching. It's about providing an experience that's going to help the interaction sustain itself. And just like you would in, if you're using language, the conversation that we're having now, we want to get this in a continuous and robust manner. So um, 
And so we, we, we want to get parents to become empower parents in music and uh, to be able to work in the same way with our support. They're empowered and they don't have to keep coming to the clinic and we can do this, you know, remotely. It would require, you know, a visit maybe the first time, but I have had families where I'm working remotely from the first time because they live too far away from us. So um, I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. I know it's hard to explain, <laughs> you know, um, because I still think we have these preconceived notions of what music is and it's about performance and it could be very ugly sounding, for lack of a better term, but beautiful in the aesthetic of the relationship. You know, in people, I teach music therapy to budding music therapists, and we talk about aesthetic. You know, what does that mean, the aesthetic of music? You know, a lot of times we equate aesthetic with beauty, and we should. But how can I say this music is more beautiful than that music? It's a total subjective experience. How I qualify music therapy, it's not about the beauty of the music. The beauty of the music is only as, is only as beautiful as the robustness as the, of the relationship. That's what it's about. You can't remove either. Like, say if I was working with your child today, Daria, and uh, you know, we, we worked for like a month together and like, wow, we have these, this, this great interaction and we've come up with these clinical themes of music that we use each week, but we stretch them out. And let's say that now you went to another music therapist. It's not like he can take those themes and use them and get the same thing. It won't happen that way because you can't remove the person from whatever it is you're doing. So now this new therapist will come up with his or her own themes with your child because it's just different now. And the, the, the form of uh, the source of inspiration is different from clinician to clinician as it would be from child to child. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like you said, it's about the experience. And, you know, even though it, this example is not music therapy, like I think about my son at his school, um, his latest thing is just making up names to call people. Um, so people that listen to the podcast all the time have heard me say this probably a long time ago. My son, uh, I think probably two years ago, was on this kick because he heard his cousin call his dad uncle. So all of a sudden, everybody was uncle. So in, instead of calling his father Dada, he started calling him uncle first name. <laughs> and then, so then he started saying, uncle nanny, uncle grandpa, uncle mama, and then at school, uncle Johnny, uncle Susie. And then some of the kids would get upset, yeah, that's not my name. And others would just ignore him or whatever. So this was this huge behavioral issue because everything was disruptive because it was uncle but that was a few years ago so what it's sort of progressed into now is that he's just making up creative names for people so my point of this is with one therapist he'll be talking about stuff and if her name is um let's just say it's katie he'll say your cake or something and then the other person if the person's name is uh Cheryl, he says, you're Sherilini. Um, and this may not be the best example, but anyway, you, the point is you're saying it's the relationship and the experience and the context and everything that creates that experience. And you wanna recreate new experiences every time so that the child 
it learns how to be interactive in different situations with different people. And the more practice they have at doing this, you know, they move up the developmental ladder, so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, 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 that's right. You know, spontaneous thinking as opposed to rote responses is what we want as much as we can. And you can't remove the relationship from an activity or an experience. Just think that, oh, if I do this experience with this person, it's going to be the same outcome. It's, we're dealing with people, we're a little more complex. I mean, some there, uh, uh, I don't want to get into it, but you know, we're not making widgets. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not an assembly line, it's, it's, it's dynamical. And uh, I remember Greenspan used to say uh, to keep it robust and in the moment and always adaptive to the child. If you know what's going to happen next, you're doing it wrong. So if you come in with these set ideas, like say activities from other therapists, what is that really doing? It's just, it's kind of like uh, removing the spontaneity from the interaction. So, so yeah, that's kind of like uh, in a nutshell, I would say, how it might play out. So I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, and um, I'll give a little sneak peek, because as I mentioned, we're going to be presenting at ICDL's conference in October. Uh, what we're hoping to show as part of the presentation is uh, a Zoom session of John coaching me as a parent to do this with my son. So I just had an idea of something and I'll see what you think about it, John. So we might make up, he likes cool sounds and weird things. Um, so we might go, um, and, and I just went to see uh, Kraftwerk, the 70s electronic band the other night. <laughs> So I have this bloop, bloop, bloop in my head, right? So I'm thinking like if we go bloop, 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 Sherilini, bloop, 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 Johnalini, bloop, 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 bloop. And then he'll make up some other name because he likes making up names. This is the type of fun thing you're talking about, right? Like that will do this kind of fun, whatever rhythm, like that's not super musical, me going bloop, 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 bloop. But the pause, and then he yells out the fun names because that's his latest thing that he likes doing, you know, calling everybody, changing their names, uh, Uncle Nanny, whatever. <laughs> um, and it gives him that chance to, to interject. And then you're going to try and change it up, make it a little different. I'll let you go with that idea. How would you progress that in our Zoom session? Because maybe we'll try this in the first Zoom session that we do. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, well, the first thing was, you know, if I'm still getting to know him and we can, and I know that is a propensity for the different, I, I wouldn't say it's not musical. I think it is because you're, you're changing the timbre of your voice and the different sounds in the front of your mouth, etc. Um, and if I do these sounds that he likes and then he comes back and it's back and forth, but I want to make sure that we're really interactive, that he just doesn't have, like he could have like a, like a million scripts, you know? And so I could do things different, different things to it, like uh, start slowing it down. Will he slow down with me? So if he slows down with me, then I know he's listening. And then I'll speed up. Okay, and then I change something, and I see his timbre is matching my timbre. So what we've really concluded there for a bunch of trials, but interactive, spontaneous trials, is that he is very responsive. So we know he's responding. So now the next thing would be to stretch it out more where um, I want to respond to him. So how can I circle it around where it's- So he's him? initiating. Exactly, right. And so that could be, you know, and he has language obviously. So it might be, you know, try to get into dialogue, you know, boop, 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 boop. 
shenene, do do. He might go to go shenene, and then I might say do do, and he says da 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 da. Janana, and then I would go. Wait a minute, I'm not Janana. And then what would he do? Would he go back to the? As I just put a, a roadblock in the way, or I might do it more musicy, where it's the same type of melody. That was a drastic change. You know what I just did there. I didn't go, boop, 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 boop. I'm not that, you know, because uh, I think that might be confusing because I'm using pronouns and things, you know, I'm not that. So if I take that away and go, who's that? Well, I, it also gives an idea, does he know the WH questions, things like that. I'm not Shanene. And then he might say, yes, you are. Uh, but he does it with a smile because we're trying to understand intent also, right? Uh, is he saying, yes, you are, because that's another memory thing? Or is it like he's trying to make fun of me, which would be an abstract thing? It's like, right, isn't that, that's two polarized things, from abstract to memory, you know? So uh, I, I think about, uh, just on that point, I think about the kid who, you know, um, you're in the playground and you're doing something a certain way, and then the smart aleck kid will come up and go, no, that's not how you do it. <laughs> Like you're saying, if they say it in that way, it's sort of like they've memorized these rules, you broke the rules, you did it wrong. Versus a sense of humor, like, I'm gonna play with you and, and make fun of you. And that's what you're saying. That's more an abstract thing that's, he's being more playful and have this sense of humor in the moment. Yeah, it's it's sarcastic, you know? And then we can even take it a bit further. Like it's not crying. No, I don't wanna be called that, you know, and pretending. But now does he understand it's pretend? So this is how we get into emotions too, right? Okay, so can I pause you here again? I'm so sorry, but this is making me think. So yeah, there was a big discussion in our parent support group this Monday about this. Um, oh, I don't wanna do that. And he's like fascinating, he would start laughing. My son would start laughing because I got a report from school yesterday that the class was lining up to go back in and he kicked the puddle of water and soaked this kid and this kid was so upset and he started laughing. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. Um, not cool. So how do we experience? And, and I will say that my son is really interested in emotions right now. He's trying to figure them out. He said, mama, are you mad? Are you sad? Mama, be mad. Mama, be sad. Mama, be angry. Who are you right now? Who are you right now? And then he wants me to say the name of the angry Sprixie from Mario Kart, who has a face like this. You know, so he's really experimenting with emotions. So based on what you just said, if you said, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to be Nana or whatever you said. Shanana. Shanana. <laughs> Shanana. <laughs> so how would you play with the emotions in that part, knowing that now my son laughs that you got sad? Yeah, so this is all part of the assessment. So if if if, if if he's like say he's laughing, I get sad. I want to understand. Maybe he's not under. Maybe he's not understanding that, and he's taking a shot at. Maybe that's funny, or it could be the anxiety laughter too. You know, I'm not sure yeah. what to do. So, so then I might say, well, okay, that's too abstract. Let's go back because maybe I'm working above the level. His level, at least for that day, doesn't mean he's that way all the time. But he might not be at the abstract or symbolic place right now. So we don't want to be. We don't want to go into pretend. That would be a waste. What we do? Why would we work there? We have to get more circles in four level, you know, shared problem solving and things like that before. And within those, like, say we do more shared problem solving, you know, where he's adapting to the to the music and bringing in words and whatnot. 
we, of course, the idea is to then embed those interactions with a lot of affect, with facial and, and, and auditory and things like that, to then help try to, you know, provide experiences that would help get him to, to get more symbolic. I mean, that takes thousands and thousands and thousands of reps. It doesn't just happen in one session, right? Uh, to then start linking emotions. Because right now it sounds as though he's equating like a facial expression with an emotion. So he knows the image. So it's memorized right now. It sounds, sounds like. And unfortunately, in a lot of schools, they teach emotions through picture cards, which is terrible because you can't learn emotion through cards. We didn't learn emotion through cards. But... I have a whole blog post about that, which I'll link to. <laughs> I know, I read it. And uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's just, you can't do that through the experience. So if mama, you said, we can't teach it through words. Like mama said when this happens, no, you gotta see mama being sad. And I remember, uh, I think I use this, 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 this little uh, story a lot because it still shakens me, you know, in a positive way working with this child with his para who uh, can be, you know, physical and whatnot. And he would, he would hit, you know, and I thought it was a form of communication. He didn't have language or word approximations. And uh, I remember she would tell me, she said, I don't know what to do. You know, uh, when he hits, he said, I tell him no hitting, no hitting, no hitting. I said, well, all right, why don't we try something else? You know, when he does this, instead of um, being punitive and narrating the story, how about joining the story and showing what happens when you get hit and start crying? So she would do this. It actually happened in the music room. And then one day, they're on the floor, he hits her on the arm, and she's floor timing. That's, this, this is what floor timing would look like. And she's floor timing this, and she's singing along at the same time. And I'm like in the background playing this very well. Music to support it. I had very little to do with this. And she starts crying. She's crying and, ah, and she's pointing. And all of a sudden, a tear comes down his eye and he starts rubbing. Wow, man, he had it in him. He didn't learn empathy in that one moment. She just created this avenue, though, that he was able to express empathy. Uh, maybe he understood the cause and effect relationship that he did. Because you could tell he cared about her a lot and vice versa. But if she would just go on this punitive thing or just be like, no hitting, you know, or say, say, you know, when you hit me, that's not right. Like, that's way too abstract, you know? And how do you understand? Because if he could understand that, he wouldn't need to be in the room in therapy. Right. You know I mean? <laughs> it's just, you know, so, but she then joins the play. It's not really as abstract, the play you hit, it's cause and effect type thing. It becomes abstract when he starts crying. Because the empathy and maybe the theory of mind is now like really exploring itself. It's such a beautiful moment. And I always share that story. And I always get the chills when I say it. Um, because it just shows this, this beauty of the aesthetic of the relationship, you know? And to a wide range. You know, I think sometimes too, that we know when something's gonna set the child off so we don't go there. And we make it happy at the time. But I know it's got to be difficult with parents too because you're there 24 hours. But if you don't go there and get beyond that, it's always going to be that way. They're going to have a, the idea is that how do they work through? How do kids work through? Even you know all kids, not just kids with challenges, all kids. How do you work through not getting that cookie when you really want it, or not getting something 
you know, to work through that so you can move up those higher levels. And then within those higher levels, you're developing, you know, flexibility and collaboration and in being in tune with the world that, oh, okay, she didn't give it to me now, but I know later she will, because she does this, as opposed to always getting it, getting it, getting it. And that's not going to translate to every context, you know, because some places that doesn't work that way. So I know it's a difficult thing, you know, parents to see their child, you know, having a hard time, but maybe we could join in and meet the affect and be with them emotionally, right? Within the context of interaction, getting those circles going to help them then to help them in a way that they are able to then self-soothe and be able to manage their ability to self-regulate through all these, you know, a range of emotion. I mean, it, it, it takes a long, 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 I mean, long, long time. Right? And so putting in a music context, right? Music covers the whole spectrum of emotion, right? We all have a, we, I, I think we all have a relationship to music in some way. Um, everybody listens to music. And so what we're trying to propose here is that we now take this love of music, you know, and use it, I don't want to say use it, it's not a tool, but to provide, use it as, uh, to provide it as a, in the form of an experience, you know, that can go through the whole gamut of emotion. So you can get those rich moments of back and forth, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I, uh... I know uh, we're we're going to be wrapping up here in a minute, but um, made me think of a couple of things. The kids who, as adults or when they might be non-speaking, learn how to type and say, "I knew that hitting was wrong, and I didn't want to hurt the person, but I couldn't control it." Um, so that's what I thought of when you mentioned that child. And then the other thing I thought of is. So yeah, like the point being, don't assume that they don't have empathy because they do, but they may not be able to control it or have another way to communicate. And then, so what do you do about that? You gave some examples of what to do. I will say that they've, we've been doing that with my son for at least three years and he's still kicking the puddle and laughing at the kids. So it does take years. It does take a long time. At least now he can articulate that that wasn't nice. He was sad. He didn't like to be like he understands it, but he's still maybe not feeling it enough to stop the impulse to kick the water. Right. That's a tricky one, though, because kids play like that, too. With kids. That's a real tricky one. The water thing. Because <laughs> some in some context, you're at the beach. That's OK. Right. Or, or, you know, it's that's a tricky one. And kids play. I mean, you know, my 13 year old does that. With his friends, you know? Neurotypical. So. And my kid, my kid just turned thirteen, and <laughs> developmentally is not. But um, but no. But the the point I think being that um, parents will say, okay, so I say that all the time. No hitting, no hitting. Like, or I I hear like parents will say they hit their siblings, and I say no hitting. So then you're saying like model like oh oh you hurt me or whatever. But the kid, it doesn't mean that the kid's suddenly going to cry and feel it. Is I think you gave the example that that happened in that case, but I just want to point out that it's going to take you being sad a lot and and for the child to really, the child has to experience that feeling of empathy of feeling bad. And like you said, the laughing, like my son probably would laugh and it would be an anxious laugh because he feels bad that he hurt you or made you sad, but doesn't really know what to do about it. So it, it is a progression and repetition and could take 
like you said, thousands of repetitions of working on this before the child will actually feel and experience differently. But your point was, if you don't start, how are they ever going to know it? If you just continue to just say, no hitting, no hitting, hitting, they don't get to get to that place where they get to practice and experience that discomfort, like, oh my goodness, I hurt that person. Right. And then you have to sit with that discomfort and you're like looking at them like, you really hurt me. And they can't sit with that discomfort. <laughs> a lot of adults can't do that, John. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but right. right. You know, yeah. it, it, it's true. And for some of the kids, it's, it's a form of communication. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, yeah, I, I know I, I hit you. It's more like you're not listening to me. You know, if you want empathy, you got to give it back. I'm not saying they're thinking that, but that's what, you know, but we are thinking that. And so, yeah, you, you know, and then, and then no, it, ain't, no, it could also be, well, why don't you hit? Like, how, you, you think you're born that way? You're not born knowing that you don't do that, right? It's a developmental progression. I just think we take all these things for granted that, you know, oh, you're just born that way, you know, but no, you got to learn. And, and you don't learn. I'll tell you, we're going to work on, no hitting it doesn't work that way you have to develop the develop those those developmental capacities that take you to the place like oh i have an impact on the world and when i do this oh that happens it's like if, if the child say is 10 years old and hasn't gone through is, is work is at a level of two years old they haven't even gone through those terrible twos that a two you know the, the neurotypical two-year-old is that and when they hit you laugh right but now you have a kid who's 10 who developmentally might be two and is not at that terrible because the terrible twos is really where the I thou principle comes in, where I do this, you do, you know, I knock the milk over and mom gets excited. Well, that's fun. Meanwhile, mom's angry, but you don't know that. It's fun that I get mom's attention. I have control over the world. So they have to learn that first before we get to like, you know, the more sophisticated things. You know, so. That, that's that's the other thing, you know, working where they're at developmentally. So, it's you just, know, it, it's infuriating to me that people just assume all these things are because my kid's autistic. No, it's just developmental. Like you said, like if they're developmentally where a two year old is, that that's their behaviors are not autistic per se. It's developmental behaviors of where they are developmentally which their delay in that development might be because of being autistic, but the behaviors are the same as all, like development is development is development in human beings, right. I think was Greenspan's point. Yeah. Yeah, and he was saying this before the science came out. I mean, now we know more about development and it's true. You know, you don't learn things in a vacuum, you know? Yeah. So, um, but that's a, that's a great point. That's why, you know, to classify people as autistic, it's, it's just, we're just helping them. They're just channeling things a little differently than some people. So, you know, some music is a way. So I'm just gonna put up this flyer of John's. If you guys listening or viewing, watching are interested in more information, you can contact John, the email address is below. And he does, you know, home-based assessment. Uh, you can go to the center, remote, as you mentioned, John. Did you want to say anything else about this? Yeah, if you, you know, a lot of folks that we work with, they don't, geographically, they're not close. So we've done all the sessions remotely. 
Um, also, we have parents that work this into the school districts. And so I do a lot of training and, and staff development with different schools in and out of New York. So if that's something you might be interested in, uh, we can help help support the schools in that way. Um, but in terms of family base, you, if you want to visit the center, you're more than welcome to. Um, and we would do a floor time assessment within the context of music and work out a, a goal plan with the parents or the caregiver and uh, see what can happen in the home and hopefully that can transfer to school. Um, and so if you have any information, feel free to email me. We could do a free consultation on the phone or through Zoom, whatever works um, for, for, for the parents. But, um, now, what if a parent says, my child has siblings and can I bring the siblings too so that we can sort of simulate what happens at home because I'm never alone with just my one child at home to do this. Yeah, we could do that. We'd like to meet the, the one child first and just because we still want to get a, a clear picture or try to get a clear picture of what what the, what the D, the I and the R is all about and then see how we can then uh, create the environment around that to make it, uh, to maximize the interactions between the siblings and the person. And then also I think it'd be important to meet the siblings uh, privately too because they get a raw deal sometimes. <laughs> you know? um, and to, 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 to see how, how we can best <clears throat> maximize interactions at home. Awesome. Um, I will also put up the link to the podcast that I did with Dr. Carpente before, which was called Floor Time Through Music Therapy. And all of this will be at the um, website, affectautism.com. Here's that podcast we did April 16th, 2018. Wow. So over four years ago now. Um, and that describes more about music therapy in general, but hopefully you enjoyed what we discussed today. Uh, thank you so much, John, for, for sharing that. And uh, hopefully listeners will be excited now to come to ICDL's conference and see, you know, some of our examples of this in action that we'll share at the conference. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to provide some information. So thank you very much. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at icdl.com the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential.